Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. After the last couple of weeks of taking a break, I want to return to Hebrews chapter 10, God being our helper this morning. I want to go back and pick up verses 23 through 25 this morning as we think on the theme, drawing near with the church, drawing near, getting close to God with the church. I'll read verses 23 through 25 in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We have reached the application section in our study in Hebrews in which the writer takes the great truths he's been discussing concerning the priesthood of Christ, and he asks the question, how do these truths apply to us? And he will spend the balance of his time making practical application of the great fact that Jesus Christ has made this sacrifice for our sins and that he is seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us right now and that Jesus Christ has opened the way of access to God so that like the high priest in the Old Testament once a year could go into the Holy of Holies Every child of grace can come nigh to God, can draw near to Him on a daily basis. And that, my beloved, is a wonderful privilege. The context of this thought in Hebrews 10, when he speaks of drawing near to God, is the context of public worship. Last time we distinguished between the fact that we can draw near to God in prayer Now, you can do that at home, you can do that in your automobile, you can do that through the course of the week. But when the saints assemble, you'll notice verse 25 speaks of the assembling of ourselves together in the local assembly or the church. It's in the context of public worship that he's thinking about drawing near to God. And think about that. Our privilege this morning as we've come together to worship is that we've come into the presence of God himself. We've drawn nigh to God. You'll never have an opportunity to be closer to God in this world, in this life, than in the congregation of believers in the local church. When the church meets, that situation is set up. It is configured to allow for people to experience God in a clearer and better way than you can ever experience Him on your own out here in the world. I hope that point is clear. Of course, we can have the presence of God on Tuesday afternoon as we're driving down Highway 17, or we can have the presence of God on Saturday morning as we're stocking up on groceries at the local grocery store. This situation is pre-made. If you're going to get close to God, this is an environment in which that is easier than at any other time in our lives. So drawing near to God with the church is the idea. 
that is here in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what Psalm 65 verse 4 says. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, O Lord. Isn't that a wonderful verse? The people that God has marked out by his grace, he's chosen us and given us the opportunity, the privilege of drawing near to him, causing us to approach unto God. We shall dwell in his courts and be satisfied with the goodness of his house. Are you satisfied with the goodness of the house of God today? Oh, my friends, I'm satisfied with the truth of the gospel. I'm satisfied with the order of worship. I'm very fulfilled as I think about all the blessings that God has given to me in the church. The Lord blessed me to be brought up in a primitive Baptist home. My granddad and my father are primitive Baptist preachers. I've been blessed to hear the gospel preached, to be in the fellowship of God's people for many, many years. And I have to tell you, dear friends, that I'm satisfied in drawing nigh to God with his people in the church. Psalm 95, verse 1 says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Notice the second person pronoun, us. Let us. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. So public worship is a wonderful privilege, and it's our opportunity again to draw nigh to God. In this 10th chapter of Hebrews and to the end of the book, the writer is encouraging these Hebrews to faithfully persevere, to keep on keeping on, not to give up, to give out, or to give in but to keep going in serving the Lord. My beloved, may I say that that's the great challenge each of us faces in our lives is to keep going. You know, anybody can run a sprint. I mean, we can all run 40 yards, you know, if need be in the service of Christ. But running a marathon, 26.2 miles is a different story. Because it's so easy in the course of that race, that long distance race. I mean, you don't see a lot of people drop out of a 40-yard dash. But you do see folks drop out of the Boston Marathon, you know. And it's a challenge that each of us faces because a long distance race requires patience. You know, in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, he's going to say, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. In high school track and field, I was a sprinter. I ran the 100 and the 200. And I dare say I didn't need patience. What I needed was adrenaline. <laughs> I didn't need patience. My beloved, you need patience to run a marathon. And we need patience, perseverance, endurance to run the Christian life. Because it's not hard to start well. And once you're getting close to the finish line, it's not hard to finish strong. But what's hard is to keep going in the middle of the race. Nehemiah chapter 4 describes the building of the wall around the city of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the wall. Halfway through, Nehemiah chapter 4 says, The strength of the bearers of burdens has decayed, and there is much rubbish. You know, when you start a project, there's excitement at the beginning, right? 
And when you're getting close to the end, I mean, it's all hands on deck, let's finish strong. But it's in the middle of a project that it's easy to get bogged down. And that's what happens to so many of God's children. And that's what was happening to these Hebrews. Many of them were experiencing pressure and opposition from their communities because of their confession of faith in Christ. Here are Jewish people living in a Jewish culture who have stopped going to synagogue because they believe the Messiah that they've been expecting has come. And now they're meeting with the church, the Christians, on the first day of the week instead of the Saturday Sabbath. You know the story. I've told this many times as we've studied this because I think it's important when you read Hebrews to keep the background information in view that what was happening here is these people were beginning to succumb to the pressure. They were buckling beneath the load, and many of them were ready to go back to the synagogue to say it's not worth it. I've lost my job, I've lost my reputation, my family's having trouble, and therefore, because the cost is too great to serve Christ, I'm going to leave the church and go back to the Jewish synagogue. That was the situation in the book of Hebrews. And therefore, the writer, as he takes these great truths, saying that we have a superior covenant, the new covenant is better than the old. The church is the reality. The law was just the shadow. He's told us that. That's the truth he's been teaching. Now he applies it in Hebrews. And he says, brethren, instead of drawing back and distancing ourselves from the church, he said, let us draw near with a true heart because we have a way of access open to God and we have a high priest standing there to advocate for us. And we have our hearts that have been touched by his grace and cleansed from sin. And because of the many benefits Christ has given us, let's keep serving Christ. Let's be faithful. Let's persevere to the end. That's what verse 23 says. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. You professed faith in Christ. Now hold it fast. Don't let go. Don't loosen your grip. For he is faithful that promised. I love how the Bible always gives a promise with an exhortation. Every time that God commands us to do something, he gives us incentive to do it. Let us hold fast. Let's be faithful because he is faithful that promised. My beloved, you have a faithful God. And that should be great incentive to you and me to be faithful as well in our service to him. Now, the following passage in Hebrews 10, after what I've read before you, you think verse 25 was hard-hitting, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, don't quit coming to church. Do you think that's hard-hitting? Wait till you read verses 26 through 31. Because this is one of the most severe and sobering warning passages against falling away, against apostasy in the entire New Testament. What he's going to tell us in the successive verses, Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, is that to step out of the fellowship of the church is to fall into the hands of a righteous God. To leave the protections of Christian fellowship is to isolate yourself, to have to deal with God in his judgment, in his anger, in his wrath alone. And the point that the writer is driving at in this passage is that apostasy generally starts with the absenting of oneself from the public assembly. You look at the fruit or the harvest that is born, well, the bud, the harvest of falling away. You see somebody who has deconverted 
from the church who has renounced their confession of faith and they have now embraced the alternate view. He says that starts with laying out of the public assembly. Verse 25. Do you see that in this passage? Brother Sonny Powell used to put it well. He'd say church members are like old cars. They usually start missing before they quit. The point is that the bud that leads to the harvest, to the fruit that's born of apostasy, the bud is, verse 25, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Okay, enough of the hard-hitting stuff for this morning. I want to say that I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the fellowship of believers. Because there's nothing so unchristian as a solitary Christian. If I may rephrase John Donne, no Christian is an island to himself or herself. There are no spiritual lone rangers in the service of Jesus Christ. I believe in the church. It was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 16, 18, upon this rock... I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is built on the foundation, on the bedrock truth, on the revealed truth of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had just said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus then says, Upon that rock I will build my church. The church, my beloved, is built on the bedrock of the revealed truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And we sang about the blessing of the church in this world just a moment ago, that hymn by Timothy Dwight, I love thy kingdom, Lord, he says. I wonder if you can repeat that today if the words resonate in your heart. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. Jesus died for the church. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand. That is, God is watching her. God is protecting her. Dear as the apple of thine eye and graven on thy hand. I love the second verse in this hymn. I wonder if you noticed it when we sang it a moment ago. For her, my tears shall fall. Are you concerned enough about the cause of Christ, my friends, to weep for it? For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my Cares and toils will be given until toil and care shall end. Beyond my highest joys, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. The fact is, my beloved, the church is like an oasis in the desert of this world. Here you find palm trees and rivers There's refreshment, there's shade in the hot sun of the Sahara of this world. Here is a green space that provides rest and comfort for God's wayfaring children here. Psalm 84 verse 1 talks about the beauties of the house of God when it says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. That's the language of exclamation. How amiable, that's an exclamation point, right? And the word amiable means lovely, beautiful. How lovely is the place where the Savior appears. That's what he's saying to those who believe in his word. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord. Now this is David's opinion of the house of God. I want to ask you, does everybody in this world share this opinion? Absolutely not. 
The world at large does not see any beauty in the church, just like they saw no beauty in Christ. You know, when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. They just looked at the outside. They didn't see the character. They couldn't see beyond the physical sensory appearance. They saw no beauty in him. So many people see the church and they see no beauty. I love the fact that the Old Testament tabernacle was covered with badger's skins. Now, you've seen these great cathedrals and ornate structures that are gold-plated or, you know, just elaborate. I mean, they're, they're gorgeous. They are stunning in their architecture and their beauty. And somebody says, on the outside, there's beauty. But, you know, on the outside of the church, it doesn't look like much. It's covered with badger skins. But you know where the beauty in the house of God was? Not on the outside. It's once you get past those badger skins and you see the golden candlestick. And you see the brazen altar and the, and the ornate robes of the priest and the table of showbread and all of these items of furniture. The beauty of the tabernacle was on the inside, not the outside. And the beauty of the church, my beloved, is on the inside. You know why? Because the Lord meets with his people here. How amiable are thy tabernacles. Whose tabernacle is this? It's the Lord's. My soul longeth, says the psalmist. Now, he doesn't care whether... Other people agree with him necessarily. He's stating his confession of faith. And by the way, that's where we must come in our lives. We must learn to be like a horse at the Kentucky Derby with blinders on, not focusing on what other people say. The believer is somebody who has rejected public opinion. He's not looking at the polls. He's not trying to fit in with the world anymore. He's saying that Christ has done so much for me as an individual I'm going to devote my life to him. That's what belief in Jesus Christ is all about. The psalmist says, My soul longeth, yea, fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My flesh crieth out for the living God. Notice he wants to be in God's house because that's where he can find fellowship with God. Yea, the sparrow hath found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. I can just see David walking outside the tabernacle and seeing a little bird's nest there under the eave. And saying, even the bird feels safe here. She's found a place where she can lay her young. And if the birds are safe here, even the sparrow. My beloved, I want to ask you, do you ever feel like a sparrow alone on the housetop in this world? There's a place where you fit. And it's in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe in the church. I believe in the communion of saints. William Wilberforce was the leader of the abolition of slavery in England many years ago. Wilberforce labored for decades. He first brought the bill to Parliament and it was voted down. And for decades he continued to push the issue to invest his life into what he saw as a moral evil. He wanted to abolish the slave trade. Wilberforce was a devout Christian man. And during the many disappointments that he had as he labored to get this bill passed, Mr. Wilberforce would say that I would get very dejected during the week and I would go to the house of God and find relief and renewal in the church on Lord's Day morning. He wrote these words, Oh, what a blessing is Sunday. Interposed between the waves of worldly business like the divine path of the Israelites through Jordan, 
There is nothing in which I would advise you to be more strictly conscientious than in keeping the Sabbath day holy. Now, of course, we don't believe, my friends, in worshiping on a literal Sabbath. It's not a law. In other words, the deacons won't kick your door down if you don't show up to church on Sunday, you know, and fine you. You won't be imprisoned. It's not a law that we follow. There's no criminal or even civil penalty for failing to do so. But I do say, my beloved, that the happiest day of the week for the believer should be Lord's Day morning. Wednesday afternoon, Saturday evening, nothing is as happy to me as the prospect of gathering with the saints. Because it's an opportunity to sing. You know, there are so few contexts anymore in the world in which people sing. Everyone's followed a sporting event, the crowd will join in, or a few folks will join in singing the national anthem. But as far as a group of people singing together, it's almost becoming a lost art in our world. But what a joy it is to express ourselves. Did you know that psychological studies have shown that people who sing on a regular basis are healthier, that it has physiological as well as psychological benefits to people? It's an amazing kind of thing. God's people have always been singing people. The Israelites sang when they came out of Egypt. They sang a song of deliverance. The sisters sang when they found out that they were going to give birth after a lifetime of barrenness. Remember Mary's song of praise in Luke chapter 2. And the church sings. What a blessed day is Sunday to hear truth. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but my mind gets confused sometimes as I listen to all of these competing voices. There are voices aplenty out there telling me what I should believe. And I don't really know sometimes what is true and what is false. I don't always know where to come down and put my feet on firm ground. But I'll tell you, when I come to the house of God on Lord's Day morning and hear the truth of the gospel once again, that's something that resonates with my heart. That's something that's validated and verified. It's true. No wonder Jesus began many of his statements by saying, verily, verily. Truly, truly, this is truth. My beloved, may I say, truth is a rare commodity in this world. You say, I don't know where to find it in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You find it there. Sunday is the happiest day of the week. And not only that, but fellowship. Not only the songs of praise and the sweet hour of prayer that calls me from a world of care. That, my beloved, is a wonderful benefit of the church. Singing, prayer, Truth, preaching, fellowship. I'm not alone in this world. You know, we're becoming increasingly isolated in popular culture. Sociologists tell us that there's a movement away from community toward individualism in our world. You know, we're an increasingly mobile society. And people don't have the staying power. They don't put roots down as much. The church provides an anchor. It provides people who care about you. Now, this isn't just like a club. You say, well, Brother Mike, I can get what I get in the church at the Lions Club. We meet uh, once a month on Tuesday mornings, or the Kiwanis, or the Toastmasters. You know, I, I have my fraternity there. I can go and we can laugh. And No, my friends, the church is a holy communion. It's a place where you can find people who share your experience, who understand the deepest needs of your soul because they've been there. And they love you for Christ's sake. It's not just a, you know, pay your money, you know, give your donation, pay your dues. 
And if you don't pay your dues, we're going to kind of isolate. No, my friends, there's genuine love. There's a family kind of relationship. No wonder the hymn writer talked about Lord's Day like this. Oh, day of rest and gladness. Think about these lyrics. Would you listen to this? Oh, day of rest and gladness. That's what today is. It's a day of rest. Anybody here need any rest? <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, day of rest and gladness. Now, we're talking about a spiritual rest that you can receive in the Lord's house. Oh, day of rest and gladness. Oh, day of joy and light. Oh, balm of care and sadness. It's a balm to spread over your cares and your sadness. Most beautiful, most bright. On thee, the high and lowly, before the eternal throne, sing holy, holy, holy to the great three in one. Listen to this. Thou art a port protected. What's he talking about? Public worship. The benefit of the Lord's day. Thou art a port protected from storms that round us rise. A garden intersected with streams of paradise. Thou art a cooling fountain in life's dry, dreary sand. From thee, like Pisgah's mountain, we view our promised land. A day of sweet reflection. That's what today is. Thou art a day of love, a day to raise affection from earth to things above. New graces ever gaining from this our day of rest, we seek the rest remaining to mansions of the blessed. My beloved, the life of discipleship is meant to be lived in community. It's interesting, have you ever noticed that the New Testament's teaching on discipleship is framed in the context of letters to churches? The letter of Paul to the Philippians, the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, the letter of Peter to the strangers scattered abroad. That is, all of the teaching about husbands and wives and finances and child rearing and honesty and character issues and the way to deal with opposition in, the, in your relationships, all of that information on how to be a Christian is framed in the context of letters to churches. Because the Christian life is meant to be lived not by yourself, but in the community of believers. We were redeemed for the church. Yes, we were redeemed for heaven, but while we're in this world, we are redeemed for the church. I believe it's the will of God, my friends. I believe it's God's will that all of his children should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved by the gospel I believe that this is a home away from home for God's children, and we want more of God's children to be here and enjoy what we enjoy, right? Indeed, my beloved, the life of discipleship is meant to be lived in community. Let me just give you a few verses again from the Psalms. Psalm 116, verse 12. The psalmist says, I will pay my vows now to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. That's Psalm 116, verse 14. Notice, where are you going to pay your vows? You've made vows. You've made promises to God. Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be a better person. Lord, help me. Well, where do you pay those vows? In the presence of all of his people publicly. You see the context of paying your vows to the Lord? Look at the 17th verse. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house. Now somebody says, preacher, you can be a Christian on your own. You don't need the church. There is a real movement over the past several decades 
against institutionalized religion. Somebody says, I don't need the church. I don't like institutional Christianity. I can be a Christian on my own. My beloved, this passage says that it's in the midst of the people of God, in the presence of all of his people, in the courts of the Lord's house, that we are to pay our vows. Yes, you can live on your own Monday through Saturday and try to do right and please God, but at some point we need to come back together to be strengthened by the fellowship of the local church. Look now at um, Psalm 22:25. Again, I'm just referencing a few of these passages that speak of congregational worship. Psalm 22:25. He says, "My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation." Are you going to praise God, David? In the great congregation, I will pay my vows before them that fear him. That is before other godly and God-fearing people. Psalm 35, 18. I will give thanks in the great congregation. There it is again. I will praise thee among much people. Now, yes, you can serve God on the creek bank or on the golf course or driving down the interstate. But my friends, ultimately speaking, God has been pleased to choose us and cause us to approach unto him in the communion of saints, in a corporate kind of setting. Psalm 149 verse 1 is another passage where he speaks of the importance of the great congregation. Let's read this verse. Praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of saints. Over and again, this thought is driven home to us. You know what the church is? It's a band of brothers. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says, two are better than one. For if one fall, the other can lift him up. And if one is cold, the other can warm him. But how can one be warm alone? (laughs) You know, that simple truth is repeated in the New Testament through all of the one another passages. Sometime I would encourage you, if you're looking for a subject to do your own personal Bible study with, get your concordance out. Strong's or Cruden's concordance. And look at all of the one another passages. Look up that phrase, one another encourage one another, edify one another, confess your faults to one another, pray for one another, exhort one another daily, says our text. Let us consider one another to provoke into love and good works and to exhort one another as we see the day approaching. One another, one another, one another, because we are part of the church. We're part of a community, right? These Hebrews were privileged to be a part of something bigger than the individual. And therefore, they were living for something bigger than themselves. So many people are in this selfie mindset, you know. It's all about me. Their theme song is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way. Or Sammy Davis Jr.'s I Gotta Be Me. (laughs) That's what they're interested in. You know the middle letter in the word sin? I, right? Sin is me-ology. So instead of thinking so much about me, my, mine, which is the most infantile of worldviews, we should see ourselves as parts of the body. Like Ephesians chapter 4 talks about, you know, when he says the body is one, but it has many members and all the joints are supplying to the edifying of the body in love. I'm just a little finger, maybe a, a knuckle in the foot, you know. Uh, I'm just a little part of the body. 
You say, well, I want to be important, Brother Mike. That's the mindset of the world. You are precious in the sight of the Lord. You're important to him. My beloved, as far as ambition is concerned, wanting my name to be in lights, that's not an attitude for true believers. The first virtue of true Christians, as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount, is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's humility that is the door into fellowship in the church, and that's why we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and be ready to die out and to follow Jesus through the waters of gospel baptism. So with all of this said this morning, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. Interestingly, the word forsake in verse 25 is the same word used in 2 Timothy 4.10 when Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me. Very same Greek word. Having loved this present world, Demas turned his back on Paul. He fell away from the truth. He went back to the world. He put his hand to the plow and he looked back. And Paul says, he forsook me. And if you want to know what the implication of that word is, look a couple of chapters further in Hebrews where it says, the Lord will never forsake his people. He will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never abandon you. And my beloved, that's how we should be to the church. We should not abandon the assembling of ourselves together. We should not forsake as the manner of some is. The fact is, my friends, the day that you lay out from church may be the day Jesus shows up. You know, that happened to a fellow named Thomas. John chapter 20, Thomas decided he wasn't going to meeting that day, and the other disciples were gathered, and it says the resurrected Christ came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be unto you, and Thomas missed it. And the other disciples went home and they knocked on Thomas's door and they said, uh, we missed you at church today. We had a special guest, a visitor. And Thomas must have said, oh yeah, who? Jesus Christ, the risen Lord of glory. And Thomas said, unless I stick my finger in the print of the nails in his hands and in his feet and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. He was a doubter. My friends, they experienced the presence of Christ And the day you lay out from church may be the day Jesus shows up. Now, mercifully, Jesus showed up again the next week. Thomas this time was present. And Jesus showed up and he said, Thomas, behold, you want to feel my hands and feet? Thrust your hand in my side. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he fell down at his feet in worship. Oh, my friends, how gracious is our Lord to his erring child. Don't forsake the assembly. You say, well, Brother Mike, I don't know why I should come to church. I mean, it's such a hassle. I'm I'm so busy during the week. I'm tired on Sundays. Because this is the day, my beloved, on which every other day is meant to revolve. You see, Sundays isn't the add-on, the addendum to the rest of your week. This is supposed to be the hub of the wheel. And the rest of the week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, all of the activities and responsibilities we have are to be connected we get strength here at the core at the center to be able to do that to be able to live a christian life in this world and we need to return to ground zero regularly because there are so many benefits to worship with the church first you get encouragement verse 24 let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. This verse teaches that absenteeism from the Christian assembly 
tends to discourage others and displays a spirit of unconcern for fellow believers. Have you ever thought about that? Absenteeism from the church tends to discourage your brothers and sisters. What would happen to this church if I just laid out? You know, when I was a boy growing up, there was a primitive Baptist preacher I knew who loved to golf, and sometimes Sunday mornings were his time to golf, and sometimes he just wouldn't show up at church, and it was just mind-blowing to me. I couldn't imagine a preacher not telling anybody, just was on the golf course instead of coming to church where he was the pastor. I'm telling you, you don't need a pastor like that. <laughs> it's time to move on, dear friends, and make other decisions. But that, the idea is just so foreign to the way I was raised, to the way I think, to what I believe. Don't you think if I didn't come, if I didn't show up, people, where's the preacher? Have you heard from him? No, haven't heard from him. Well, uh, we need to find out what's happened to it. I'm afraid he's in trouble. He might have had a wreck or something. You know, everybody would be concerned. Did you know the same is true for every believer, not just the pastor? When you're not here, it tends to discourage other believers and expresses, if it becomes habitual, a spirit of unconcern for fellow believers and for the future of the church. I don't know if you've seen that little question that says, if every member in the church was just like you, how strong would your church be? Now, I don't know about you, but that's something to think about. If every member in your church was just like you, how strong would your church be? You say, Brother Mike, why are you preaching this to us? We're here this morning. I'm preaching it in love, I hope. And I'm preaching it, my friends, because it's the next passage in Hebrews. Because the apostasy of these Hebrew believers started with checking out. You know, the manner of some is. Not forsaking the assembly. Don't abandon the church, as he says, some people are already starting to miss meetings. This was happening in the first century. And did you know that I know of nothing that burdens pastors any more than church members who don't come to church? Every preacher I know among our people, I mean, if we get together and we commiserate with each other, we have a you know, poor me session, a pity party, that's, that's the topic. You know, I just can't get everybody together. One pastor said, I can't wait till we get to heaven because everybody who's supposed to be there will finally show up. <laughs> Inevitably, you know, you have a special meeting and somebody's not there. Now, I know that there are always reasons and there, you know, that there are legitimate reasons from time to time. I'm talking about a habitual, you know, just falling out of the habit of coming to the house of God because it's no longer the center of your life. When you come, my friends, on Sunday, think about how your life is inseparably bound up with the brethren. If one person falls into sin, it tends to weaken the others. Because of the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart, it says in the Old Testament. And it causes us all, my friends, to feel because we're a part of each other. We love each other. The church is not just a sanctified country club, but it's a family affair. You see how relevant this passage is to where we live today. So he says the Bible just isn't relevant. When people say things like that, it, they tell on themselves that they haven't been reading it lately because it is very relevant to what is happening in our culture. So many young people, I did some research this week on this new movement called uh, the deconversion movement. It's a word perhaps you haven't heard. You've heard the word conversion, haven't you? What's a convert? Somebody who joins up with the group. To deconvert means to go in the opposite direction. You may be aware of 
several prominent Christian people, leaders, authors, Christian music artists, pastors, people who once had the reputation of being devout evangelical leaders who have renounced the faith for atheism or for some other form. I know one prominent Christian person who left Protestantism for Catholicism. I don't call that progress, to be honest with you. No offense intended to anybody. That's not conversion. That's deconversion. And then there are so many who have become, who've professed atheism, who have reached the point that they say, I just can't believe in the God of the Bible. And what people need is to return to the Word of God. Actually read your Bibles. You'll be surprised how relevant it is, how accurate it is, how the Holy Spirit will use it to open your eyes. Instead of reading books about the Bible, read the Word of God itself. Because that's one of the things that helped Asaph in Psalm 73. When he said, I was struggling on the inside. He said, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was looking at how these wicked people prosper out here. And he says, I wondered about the injustice of it all. And he said, I, I thought if I speak thus, if I tell others what I'm feeling, it will trip them up. I should offend against the generation of God's children. So I internalized my struggles. And he said, I was almost, I was almost an apostate until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. All of my questions, my confusion was straightened out when I went to church and heard the Word of God preached, and it all made sense then. That'll happen to you, my friends. It's happened to me many times. The house of God is a lovely and beautiful place. You.